1: Visit BankOfAmerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA Copyright 2024.
2: Hello, I'm Kenneth Cucke, Senior Editor at the Paper, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. On today's program, With America's grueling election finally over, we check in with our environment correspondent Miranda Johnson about what the result may mean for the fight against climate change.
1: The Clean Power Plan, which is lingering in the Supreme Court, that may well now die in its tracks.
2: We are joined by Martin Sweeney, chief executive of Ravelin, to find out how artificial intelligence is being used to fight fraud.
3: Human beings are prone to sleeping and they're prone to bias. And I think the two things are where artificial intelligence really comes in.
2: And a wager made by two scientists over 20 years ago, involving the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, and an elegant theory of the universe called supersymmetry needs to be settled. Science correspondent Ananyo Bhattacharya explains more.
0: Dr. Lane thinks that Dr. Gross is in danger of welching on the bet. A
2: famous American political aphorism goes that you're allowed to have your own opinions, but you're not allowed to have your own facts. Well, it turns out that this 2016 presidential election has shown us that that might not always be true, that in fact, it seems like if science would be one thing that should be objective, that the American population is really debating matters of fact, and in particular, whether climate change is real or not. With me to discuss this is our environment correspondent, Miranda Johnson. Miranda, tell me. What's going on in America regarding climate change and public opinion?
1: One of the interesting things, Ken, was that the words climate and change didn't actually come up together that often on the trail. But what we had was an interesting split, not only between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton on the issue of climate, but also there's a slightly more subtle distinction between many Republican voters and many Democrat voters. Because while Hillary Clinton says she you know, believes the science and climate change is real, Donald Trump has tweeted that he believes climate change is a hoax made up by the Chinese to harm American businesses. The more subtle distinction I was referring to with voters is that the bulk of voters believe that climate change is in fact happening, along with 95% of scientists, where they differ Republicans and Democrats is over why climate change is happening.
2: And what's the nature of that difference?
1: Essentially that Republicans feel that natural causes are to blame and Democrats that know it's anthropogenic emissions since the 1800s.
2: And is there any legitimacy to the Republican view?
1: Well, it's interesting. There are certainly natural processes which are having an effect on the climate big earth system phenomena obviously have big impacts on temperature and weather systems around the world. So things go up and down, not only because of all the carbon dioxide that's being pumped into the atmosphere, but there's an interesting new study out this week that suggests that actually a recent pause in the growth rate of atmospheric carbon dioxide is is due to plants essentially taking up more of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because it has a fertilising effect. So there's all sorts of very complicated factors that play into this, but certainly man-made emissions are the root cause of climate change.
2: Let let me take a moment to delve into the research that was reported this week. It sounds very interesting. This seems like it's a very positive thing for climate change if the plants are sort of absorbing the carbon that we are pumping into the atmosphere.
1: Yes, and it could potentially boost yields of useful crops, things like wheat, things like maize in certain parts of the world. It's obviously going to be very specific to local geography. But what we're seeing is that as plants photosynthesize, they open tiny pore like holes to let in carbon dioxide because carbon dioxide and water. Producing carbohydrates and oxygen is photosynthesis. As there's more carbon dioxide in the air, they need to open those little holes to a lesser extent and for less time to suck in carbon dioxide, meaning that they lose less water. So, overall, the process becomes more efficient. And this means that, therefore, plants, particularly in colder regions, which are now warming to a greater extent, the Arctic region, for example, is warming at twice the rate of other parts of the world. We're seeing a flourishing of greenery
2: so this sounds great is it only great or are there any downsides to it
1: well it's not going to last is the thing we're not just going to get more and more green growth thanks to carbon dioxide forever there's a diminishing fertilization effect And while plants like extra carbon dioxide, plants are also suited to growing within a certain temperature range and hate extra heat. So while we may see a flourishing of greenery up in cold regions of the world, we may increasingly see dieback of tropical forests because weather patterns are going to change, precipitation patterns are going to change, and we could get increasing drying up there.
2: Now, Miranda, let me end on this sensitive question and ask you to gaze into your crystal ball. What do you expect from a presidential administration of Donald J. Trump?
1: This is something I think that the international community feared. And it's one of the reasons why the Paris Agreement, which came into force earlier this month, why the ratification process for that was so hasty, because it's going to be very difficult now for Mr. Trump to extricate America from it within one term. He wants to initiate pro-coal policies once more. I also expect that the Clean Power Plan, which is lingering in the Supreme Court, that that may well now die in its tracks. If that is the case, a 2007 ruling by the Supreme Court, which put carbon dioxide under the remit of the Environmental Protection Agency, means that something's going to have to be done about carbon dioxide, even if the Clean Power Plan fails. So there are some things that Trump can change, and there are some things that Trump is going to struggle to change.
2: Great. Well, listen, Miranda, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. If you have any questions or comments about the prospects for climate change under the new president, fire them our way in an email to radio at economist.com and have your say. We do listen. Next, Online fraud is rampant and costly. In the cat-and-mouse game between the bad guys and the banks, it seems like the public is losing. Can artificial intelligence help? New innovations in AI are going into many areas of business, which we've been documenting on the Babbage podcast. How might it be of assistance in detecting and preventing fraud? I'm joined today by Martin Sweeney, the CEO of Ravlin, one of a host of companies using AI to fight online fraud. Welcome, Martin. Hello. How bad is the problem?
3: It's big and getting bigger. Okay. So it's hard to get exact numbers on this for obvious reasons. But I think a good estimate for 2014-15 is around $16 billion. So that's a global number of the type of fraud we're looking at, which is primarily card
2: fraud. So it's a big problem. We don't have a lot of transparency around it. But AI can come to the rescue. How so? I think the main way that AI can help is by really
3: spotting who's committing this fraud. And the reason that we need AI to do that is because the problem is now so large and unwieldy and the amount of data you need to process to spot the perpetrators is getting really out of hand.
2: So how does AI get used to detect the fraud?
3: We use AI to spot patterns and notice trends and anomalies in large-scale data flowing through merchants in the banking system.
2: Specifically, when a transaction is being made, you look at all the different features of the transaction to spot what are the telltale signs.
3: Yes, but actually if you just look at a transaction in isolation, it's quite hard to make an educated decision. Really what you're seeing at the transaction level is, here's a payment instrument, a card, please go and bill it for $30, right? That's actually quite hard to give a yes-no decision on. So what we and others in the industry do is to take a wider view. We say, what happened before that transaction went through? Who is it that's making that transaction? What is the order for? Where is it coming from? And by stringing together all those different pieces of information, you operate in a much richer data environment. And that's where you really need the artificial intelligence side of things to crunch through much larger swathes of data and to spot the ever-changing faces and patterns within that.
2: And so what have you spotted in terms of the patterns of fraud that the AI system was able to detect that sort of human beings looking at transactions going through the pipe might not have spotted?
3: Human beings are prone to sleeping and they're prone to bias. And I think the two things are where artificial intelligence really comes in. If you have what's called an expert system, which is how humans usually weigh in on the problem, they they express their current understanding of fraud in a set of rules or conditions that you may either break or meet. And when you exceed those conditions, then you're stopped for fraud. That's typically how these systems work. The problem with that is that there's, the boundaries of those systems are really easy to find out and detect. So what you see is fraudsters going in and trying lots of different combinations of, of transaction types or methodologies and, and environments in which they perpetrate fraud. And I think AI has been wonderful for looking at the attempts as well as the actual fraudulent transactions. And that's a key difference there. As a human, you are naturally, because data processing is really hard for us, we take shortcuts. We skip through and we look to that a priori assumption that we've come for and we look for confirmation of that bias. And actually, if you go away from that and move to a very pure data-driven solution, then you can spot those patterns much more easily because you won't blink it in doing so.
2: Are there some examples of patterns that
3: you were able to spot? This is about the changing environments that we see that customer coming through, and then the change in rate in which they progress through a transaction. So if you are like me or or most other people, you don't know your card number off by heart, so you have to go and look it up. You have to find your wallet. So if you look at a transaction and it progresses through really quickly, that's an anomaly. Uh, And it's those sort of patterns and behaviors that we can pick up quite nicely and easily.
2: Are there some things that human beings are better than the algorithm at doing?
3: Yes, absolutely. And I think... We need to be aware industry-wide in AI about the the strengths and weaknesses of both sides. From a human point of view, the large-scale data analysis is really hard. But then from um, an expertise point of view, there's a lot of domain understanding that a human builds up and finds it difficult to describe, but just has a gut feeling. And that's essentially what we're trying to replicate here. We're building a specialized AI system that replicates with a high accuracy the ability for a human to review a transaction or order and give it a yes or no. But we're doing it at a much higher volume and speed than a team of humans could do.
2: Do you get the feedback from the human decisions and put it back into your algorithm? Absolutely,
3: key part of the learning. So if it wasn't powered by the feedback, it would just be a static statistical system, which has a view, and that view will instantly be out of date. As the attacks change, as the profile of your customers change, and as the market overall changes, you need to be able to react to that in real time.
2: Martin, thank you very much. You're welcome. Last week, we discussed some potentially life-changing technology, a new tool that allows wine drinkers to blend themselves the perfect glass of wine. Many of you engaged with the idea on social media. James Alford wrote, Wine isn't hard, it's a drink. He later said, Wine words are easily understood and very much worth learning if one wants to be satisfied with what they ask for. On Twitter, a user wrote, quote, Totally unacceptable. Tantamount to vulgarizing wine. Unquote. Let us know what you think by giving us feedback, comments, and thoughts about all our content on Facebook or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Last year, the world's largest, most expensive smasher of atoms, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, was turned back on after a two-year revamp. Beams of protons have been whizzing around towards each other ever since, in the hunt for a theory about the underpinnings of the universe, one of which is called supersymmetry. So what have the researchers found? Ananya Bhattacharya, our science correspondent, is here with the story. Hello, Ananya. Hi, Ken. It sounds as if the story doesn't actually begin with the science experiment, but begins with a bet. Tell me about this.
0: Yes, well, the roots of supersymmetry, Ken, go back uh, all the way to 1970 when uh, researchers first thought of it. But the bet that you're alluding to dates from 1994, when a group of physicists were having a shall we say, rather drunken dinner in a town called Erice on the island of Sicily. As the dinner was in full flow, two of them, Ken Lane and David Gross, who is now a Nobel Prize winner, decided to make a bet, which they scribbled down on a napkin. In the bet, David Gross said that the LHC, which was at that stage being built would discover signs of supersymmetry. And if it didn't, then he would buy the entire table of 10 people dinner at Girardet's, which is a, a pretty swanky, exclusive restaurant in Switzerland. The terms called for a, a limit on the amount of data collected. That was 50 inverse femtobarns, which are the funny units that physicists use to measure the number of collisions. OK, first what is supersymmetry? So supersymmetry, or Susie for short, is a theory in particle physics, and it stipulates that all of the fundamental particles that we know and love, like the photon uh, or the electron, have supersymmetric counterparts called sparticles. Now, with that assumption, supersymmetry theories can explain an awful lot that physicists would otherwise struggle to understand. So, for instance, some of the particles that are posited by the theory could make up dark matter. That's the mysterious stuff that physicists know permeates the universe.
2: OK, so who won the bet?
0: Well, that is controversial. The Large Hadron Collider has now collected enough data that uh, Dr. Lane thinks that he has won. Certainly there's been no evidence of supersymmetry particles yet, And he thinks that it is time for Dr. Gross to pay up. But Gross feels otherwise. Dr. Gross says it looks as if he'll have to pay up, but he wants to wait for the particle physicists themselves to call it. Uh, But Dr. Lane thinks that Dr. Gross is in danger of welching on the bet. He says that the criteria set out in the original bet have been met. And so he and uh, the three referees that were included on the original napkin think that it's time that Dr. Gro should uh, cough up and pay for dinner.
2: So what is the nature of the problem underlying the dispute? Do we need more data to understand this or have we answered the question conclusively?
0: Now the problem with Susie is that despite all its elegance and beauty, which is why physicists admire it, it is difficult to pin down. So you can jiggle and change the models of supersymmetry so that the sparticles start to appear at higher and higher energies. So what generally happens is when the LHC doesn't discover evidence for them, the theorists revise their models to say that sparticles will only appear at higher energies.
2: When you say revise our models, I think what you're saying is change the goalposts.
0: Uh, That is one way to view it. And I think that is the way that some theorists view what is going on now. They say that, you know, we haven't seen any evidence for supersymmetry. It is a beautiful theory. And so now, instead of tweaking the models that we have, we should simply wait to see what discoveries the LHC makes over the next few years.
2: So how long are we going to wait until we call a victor on the bet Clearly, these men are hungry.
0: Uh, well, even Dr. Gross suggested that at the end of the year might bring a dinner at his expense, but um, we shall have to wait and see whether he meets his obligations under the bed.
2: Ananyo, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Ken. That's all for this show. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit economist.com. And don't forget to pick up the latest issue where you can read about most of the themes that we talked about on this show. In London, this is The Economist.